Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, November 26, 2023, called God in First, Second, and Third Person, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, verse 11. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Grace and mercy are yours in Christ. I pray that he's held up and honored today in these words. Christ the King Sunday, we're going to point that direction. We're going to use the Old Testament and we're going to use the Paul's letter, the epistle reading. We're going to use those. I, I learned a new vocabulary word to, uh, this week. Um, let me see if I'm going to have to pronounce it right. I've got to read it. Iliism. Iliism is what it's called. Does anyone know what that is? Iliism? Who didn't hear my sermon in the first service? I'd never heard of this before. It means speaking about yourself in the third person. Do you find that irritating when you hear it on, see it on TV, like LeBron James does it sometimes? Marilyn Monroe used to do it a lot. And that one, I, I heard someone talk about it. I kind of get it. When you talk about yourself in the third person, it's almost kind of a distancing of yourself. Things were so intense, the scrutiny was so constant that she almost talked about it to separate herself from who that image was. That intrigues me. But you know who the most famous one is? Elmo. Elmo talks about himself in the third person. Come on, do you know who that is? Okay, good. Or if you're my age, how about from Blazing Saddles? Mongo. Mongo like candy. Do you know that one? Or if you're a Harry Potter fan, do you know who? Dobby. Dobby must put his head in the oven because Dobby loves Harry Potter. Right? So um, it's interesting because in those instances, we kind of get it with, a, with Elmo. It's very childish. Mongo is kind of not, doesn't have all the wires connected. He's not the brightest guy, Mongo. Do you know who Mongo is? Okay, good. Guy who punches the horse. <laughs> Sorry, that's terrible. Oh, it made it on the internet too. Oh, that's unfortunate. Okay, anyway, they talk about themselves in the third person. Childish or not real sharp or that kind of thing. Or, um, but here's where it gets weird for me. Those I have no problem. And actually, little, little kids will do it too. And you know what the, the data says on it? Because when you read about this thing, it's considered a mental disorder. To talk about yourself in the third person is considered a mental disorder until just the last few years, which should not shock anyone, because now nothing is a disorder. I mean, seriously, it's really, it's really weird. Now psychology, oh, it's a defense mechanism. No, it's narcissism is what it is, because now presidents do it. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have done it, talk about themselves in the third person. Here's a famous one from my history, which you, many of you may not even remember this guy, Bob Dole. I remember hearing it. He was talking in front of when Bob Dole becomes president, Bob Dole is going to balance the budget or something like that. And I'm thinking, who are you? Who are you talking about? And, and that, when you hear it from those guys, or like LeBron James and people like that, athletes or performers, when you hear it like that, it really is kind of, they do not have good self-awareness. They're thinking they're more kind of important than they are. They're saying it to give gravity. It's really interesting. It's really, and so when you read about this, I find it fascinating. People that talk about themselves in the third person, it's, it really is kind of a disorder. 
Like a little kid, they'll describe it this way, a little kid will do it, and they say around two or three or about four years old, they will stop doing it, talking about themselves in the third person. Why? Because they come to self-recognition. That's healthy. I'm not that guy. I'm me. And it's self-recognition. Now, here's the thing. If there's anyone who could talk about themselves in the third person, it would be God, wouldn't it? It would be God. Because God does have the gravity, has the, the, the majesty, the influence to touch and speak into every situation. And so when I read these passages, I was really captured by that, this idea. Because in Ezekiel, did you catch it? Thank you, Wendy. When we heard that, did you see how many times God says, I, first person? Now, I use that as an illustration because I'm afraid human beings sometimes want to talk about themselves in the third person, and the only person who has the right to do that is God. And we're going to let God speak to us in both the first and the third person today in the Old Testament and then in the epistle lesson. And in the Old Testament, did you hear that from Ezekiel? Let me give you a little bit of the background. So God had charged priests and leaders, rabbis and so forth in Israel. And God does it in the New Testament too. He charges pastors and church leaders to care for the flock. Right? I, you may or may not know this. The word for pastor in the New Testament is shepherd. Poimene is the Greek word. It means shepherd, literally. And, and if you read the first portion, if you look at this, Ezekiel 34, I didn't... I didn't, I didn't a sign at all. But the first half of the chapter, God says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Shouldn't shepherds take care of the flock? And it goes on, verse after verse after verse. It's crazy. You should read it. My flock lacks a shepherd. They've been plundered. They become food for wild animals. I'm going to take them away from you. I am against the shepherds. I will hold them accountable. Oh my God. And by the way, pastors kind of take that seriously because it's, God says it really. We don't think the New Testament only talks about pastors. We think this too. It's a hard word. And he says they've blown it. They haven't cared for the sheep. They haven't, they've in fact taken advantage of them. They've kind of, you know, that's where we get the word fleece someone right? They've stolen from them. They haven't put them in safe places. I've charged them with all these things and they haven't done it. So that's the Ezekiel passage. And if you, if you do have a Bible, if you open it up and you look at Ezekiel 34 and count all of those statements, those I statements, it's, it's really almost like this. You know, you remember when your mom used to say to you, don't make me come down there. They ever say that? Don't make me. If I come down there, you're not going to like it. Here's what's so great about what we're about to enter into in Advent and Christmas is that God's saying is, I'm coming down there. Not to threaten you, not to harm you, but to do what the shepherds could not do. To be the good shepherd. And so that's the Ezekiel one. And then in the epistle reading, then we have Paul who's dealing with the church that's, that's struggling to accept the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. So that whole long chapter of 15 at the end of 1 Corinthians is all about the resurrection. So this is just a little chunk out of it. 
But it's powerful because he's, it's talking in the third person. He, 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 he rose from the dead. He's the first fruits of the dead. He's the one you can count on. It's really cool. So I'm watching this and I go, oh, this will be clever. God talks in first person. Paul talks about Jesus in third person. And both of them are talking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so that's the focus here today. So I hope these are words of encouragement because it's the last Sunday in the church year and then next year, Advent, we're talking about the coming king. Here we go. Here comes Jesus. So Ezekiel. So growing up in New York, my best friend, many of you know this, Mike Prestia, Mike and his family. When I got kind of welcomed into that family, it was a big, rambunctious, active, Sicilian, Italian family. They were loud and they were loud (laughs) and they fought all the time. And there were four boys and a girl, and the girl's name was, come on, Maria, right? She was Maria. And she was the princess, I am telling you. So the boys all were mad at her all the time, and she would get them all in trouble all the time, and mom and dad would yell. There was just a lot of yelling. And I wondered why these people didn't, because they would insult each other, and they would give each other grief, and the moment you stepped out the door and somebody looked sideways at one of them, watch out. They were all united in protecting the family. We even have that in our denomination. I just was in, this is a crazy thing, I just did a funeral in Carson City yesterday, and uh, thankfully I made the connection back to get here. Almost didn't, but um, I was on the same flight with Randy and Carrie. But it was really kind of cool. I went and saw another high school, Lutheran High School, Sierra Lutheran. I had visited them while we were building. Um, and then back in night, like 2015 or 16. And then I visited two churches too, and the one church that we did it in. And they're in our, our denomination, our tribe, kind of our tribe. So it's always interesting to go to these other places. And it, you know, um, and it was funny because the, the, the service I did for her, her name was Martha, and... Uh, I got very close to her very quickly because I was over at her house fixing something. I'm not a handyman. I'm really a blunt instrument. But I was over at her house fixing something. And so she's walking around the house kind of like, well, you're not like the, the church where I was at, the, Missouri, you know, the Lutheran church down in Carson City. You're not like that. She said, how come you don't have a pulpit? <laughs> how come you wander around when you talk and stuff like that? I said, well, I was a teacher. She says, it looks like a cabaret up there. That's what she said. She says, how can you do a screen? How can you do a screen? You didn't have a screen in there. And I said, you know who loves my screen the most? People over the age of 70. Because arthritis and holding multiple things in your hands is hard. Oh. So each time she goes, oh. And then she goes, how can you tell all those stories and jokes and stuff? And I said, well, that one you got to take up with Jesus. Because Jesus does it all the time. But we became dear friends quickly, very fast. But it was interesting because her comment was, my church down there in Carson City is not like that. So there I am at that church, and I'm stuck in a pulpit having to preach. And I almost fell out of it twice. (laughs) Um, But it was great because I got to meet the pastor, and I met a pastor from another church, St. Luke's in Reno. Had a great, we talked for an hour and a half after the funeral and just talked. And you know what's funny? When you don't know one another, you talk about each other. And in our denomination, we can fight like cats and dogs. But as soon as a Baptist says something bad about us, we're, oh, we're going we're gonna to get them. I mean, it's crazy. It's like, it's, it's kind of, it's family, right? Here's the point. Jesus, I mean, God in this section in Ezekiel 
This is personal. This is personal. It's not like it isn't hard to manage the flock. It isn't hard. He's not saying to the all these shepherds that they, it was easy or that, or that they, they weren't doing some things or whatever. But it's, it's so personal for God. This is just personal. These are my people. This is my flock. What are you doing? God takes this personally. And this is really the first thing I want you to know about this. Um, God, um, God takes this. Um, t- it takes it to heart. And he takes it so closely to heart that he says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that on. Um, so like when I'm down there visiting that high school, um, I had visited it. And when I visited, they were like 100, 110. And now they're going to be 180. So like Nevada has like some vouchers and stuff like that and some school support and so forth. If we could get that here, we would have to build another building. It would be awesome. Sorry, I'm giving you my political stance on that. We need vouchers. Vouchers now! Okay, anyway. Um, we would love to serve more kids. And it's hard to in Idaho with no support, you know, with, with no financial support. But they got it, they're, so they're just bursting at the seams. And I talked to the gal. She had been there when I visited the last time. And I said, so what's that like? And she said, because uh, she said, I envy you guys. And see, because now we're going to be 180. And she said, she's a track coach and and does chemistry and sciences and stuff. And she says, now we're going to have to, not every kid can play on the team. We're going to have to cut some kids. And not every kid gets a part in the play. And not every kid gets a play in the praise band. You know, and that kind of thing. Not every kid. And she said, you know, the way it was before, I knew every kid's name right now. And she says, it takes a while. It's going to take me half a year. It's going to take me longer. And to get to know parents' names. And to get to really know the families and so forth. And she said, I kind of envy you guys, because I said, we got 62. And she said, oh, how great. Because every kid gets to play. Every kid gets a chance. Every kid gets an opportunity. And no one flies under the radar. Here's my good news to you. None of us fly under God's radar. Not a one of us. Now, for some people, that's scary. And I don't want it to be scary. Even for some of our kids in school, it could be scary. I can't go unnoticed. Darn right. We're not letting you go unnoticed. Because you matter. Because we take this very personally. God takes it very personally. That you matter to him. Second thing is, then here's the second point in Ezekiel. Don't mess with my sheep. Don't mess with them. You mess with that. Here's a point. When I do marriage counseling, I, focus, I always talk about pre-marriage counseling. And even in, when I'm working with folks that are struggling, I'll go to Genesis 2. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother. The two become one flesh. Right? The two become one flesh. Jesus quotes that passage. Paul quotes it. It's important. I mean, it's always funny when we do these big debates about marriage and stuff. People go to people like us and say, why are you all angry about marriage? And I go, we didn't bring it up. We didn't make it up. This is God's idea. Because God is describing something exceedingly intimate, which is a reflection of his relationship with his people. He describes us as his bride. And, when, and he describes that as one flesh. 
that we are to be one in union. That kind of intimacy, that kind of union is what God describes. So what God is saying, so I tell people when I'm counseling couples, I say, here's the thing. What is the significance of this passage? That the two become one flesh. Because obviously you don't occupy the same bag of skin. I mean, you're two people. You're still two individuals. What does this matter? Here's what happens. In love and in marriage, in Christian marriage, God is saying, here's how I mean it to be. To the husband, when she hurts, you hurt. When he celebrates, you celebrate. What happens to you happens to me. This is the point here. Don't mess with my sheep. Why? Because what you do to them, you're doing to me. And, we've, and we don't grasp that. What you're doing to them, you do to me. And so what an opportunity we have. Now, turn that positive. And what, you get, what you're doing for them you're doing for me. That's actually the assigned gospel reading today is the sheep and the goats. Remember, they stand before Jesus and he says, hey, when I was in prison, you visited me. When you were thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Do you remember that passage? Um, and when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And, and the people are like, when did we see you, Lord? If we'd known that, we'd have dressed up, you know. And he goes, whenever you did it, for even the very least person, you did it for me. And then conversely, this is the other one, right? You know, hey, you didn't visit me and you didn't help me. You didn't. And they're like, well, if we had known it was you, whenever you denied it, for even the least of people, you denied me too. This is a, meant to be a positive. Don't mess with my sheep means that they matter and that what happens to them happens to me. Jesus even says that to Paul on the Damascus road to Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me, he says. Because what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. But what God gifts to one, he gifts to all. And so a deep and deep abiding love. So anyway, don't mess with my sheep because I love them so dearly. Third point from Ezekiel. Here's this one. Paul, so I say, third point is, this is very personal. I know I said this is personal in the first one. No, really. It's really personal for, for God. We so often, so often, especially in the Old Testament, we, this is a mistake because it's not meant to be this way. My, my Jewish friends understand this so well, the intimacy of God in Song of Songs, in the Psalms, and New Testament Christians struggle with this. We think it's only intimate in Jesus. It's not true. God is, this is very personal. You look at it. I, I put it up here. These are all action words that God says. I myself will do this because my shepherds have failed. I'm going to do it. This is me. I am going to do this. I will search. I will look after. I will rescue. I will bring them out. I will gather. I will bring them into. I will pasture them. I will tend them. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. I will judge, which, by the way, is a positive thing when you're being judged innocent. Right? Not guilty. I will save my flock. I will place over them one shepherd, who he names as David, who Christians see as Jesus in the line of David, greater David. And so this is very personal. There are 28 times in the chapter of Ezekiel 34 where God says, I will. It matters to God. It's God himself. You, are more, you more than matter to God is the point. 
This is the personal passion of God, and it is the why of Christmas. What is implicit for us in the Old Testament, but there it is, as clear as a bell. I myself will do this. How will God do that? In our faith tradition, right? In Christ Jesus, in God in the flesh, he will, in fact, shepherd his sheep. And Jesus takes that on. You think his Jewish listeners don't know what he's saying when he says, I am the good shepherd? You think they don't know Ezekiel 34? They got it memorized. And so Jesus is claiming that role to himself. And so as we prepare for Christmas starting next week, that's the why. It's very personal for God. The second thing, though, is now let's go to the other one. In 1 Corinthians, it's God in third person. Now, this is interesting. Paul is a, Paul is a brilliant dude. And um, in the Greek, there some, in your English Bible, sometimes a whole page in the Greek is one sentence. Now, it's not in your English Bible because no human being can do that. So we have to put in periods and commas and stuff like that, which isn't in the Greek manuscript. But Paul will bring very long sentences, very long thoughts. And there are two words he uses that tell you a very significant thing. So we'll have this long kind of lays out the facts, lays out the circumstance, and then he'll say one of two things. He'll either say, therefore, like my favorite single verse in the Bible. Tanya, you asked me this, didn't you? My single favorite verse is a therefore. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's my favorite single verse. Um, I have a favorite chapter. I have a favorite parable. I have a favorite miracle. I have, you know. But it concludes, it makes a shift from Romans 7 in which Paul says, what a screw-up I am. I'm a mess. I'm a hot mess. I, I sin all the time, and I know better. Who will save me? Therefore. The other one is, and I couldn't put it up here. I'm going to say it out loud so it'll make it on the internet too. The other one is but. <laughs> he has big therefores and big buts. I put it up here as however. Um, but that's really what Paul does. He lays this whole thing out and then he says, however, it's not the way you think. It's this way. So here's the first thing. So if in the Old Testament we get this wonderful first-person intimacy of God, his personal passion, that you are the focus of his love, in the, in the epistle lesson, here's what we get. <clears throat> we had a group of people um, not struggling to believe firmly that the resurrection was real. And Paul essentially makes the argument very simply, I'll say it very simply, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're all out of luck. All right, we're just met. We're, in fact, he's like, well, I should go sell used cars or something. You know what I mean? Because I lied to you. Then I, it proves that I lied to you. And when Paul is saying, no, no, no. So he lays out that whole thing. If this, if this, if that, if that. If, if Christ hasn't risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Goes on and on and on. But then he gets here and he says, however. But. Christ has indeed risen from the dead, the first fruits that have fallen asleep. Now, Wendy read this in the introduction to that. Here's the key point. Other people rose from the dead, right? Lazarus, the widow's son at Nain, Jairus' daughter, right? They rose from the dead, correct? They died again. Not Jesus, right? That's the point of that. He is the first fruits, never to die again. He never dies again. So here's the thing. He says, but in fact... Christ is risen from the dead. Now, I share this with like my life in Christ saying, forgive me. I'm going to shift into teaching mode for just a minute instead of preaching mode. 
I want to tell you, why do we think the resurrection is true? And sometimes I do this on Easter and stuff, but I don't like to. I, I don't have enough time at Easter. I, I got to preach short on Easter, kind of. So I want to tell you this. Out of all scholars, all scholars, believers, atheists, everyone, no matter what, I'm going to give you five things that over 75% and four of them over 90% agree on. Whether they're believers or non-believers, what we know from ancient texts and archaeology about the death and resurrection of Christ, okay? So here's the thing. I'll give you the indeed. Indeed, Christ has risen from the dead. Here's the first one. We call this the minimal facts approach. Did Jesus die by crucifixion? Right? Did he really die, and did he die by crucifixion? 95, more than 95% of all scholars agree with this. This is a given. There are seven sources outside of the Bible which talk about the execution, death of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because Islam claims that Jesus did not die. And I always find it the most astounding and silly argument I have ever heard because I would love to see an imam stand up in front of the Roman centurion who was in charge of killing this guy and tell him, you screwed up, and see what happens to him. Because the Romans were absolute experts in killing people. And this was a crew who was trained, and their sole job was to kill people. So you tell him he failed at his job. Because if he failed at his job, not just he, but his whole cohort executed. So I'm just telling you, they were awfully good at what they did in a really horrible way, right? So the first thing is all scholars, 95% or more. I mean, you have to be absolutely out to lunch to believe that Jesus Christ did not die. That's all scholars. Second thing, the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them, over 95%. They say, yes, all the evidence is that the disciples believed that, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that he appeared to them. Now, here's the clincher for me, though. They don't add this to it. But here's what we know. Paul tells us over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Over 500. We have not a shred of evidence. I mean, nowhere in any writing, any, anybody who opposed Christianity, no Jewish writing, nothing, that says that any of those 500 refuted their claim. You know, I'm not, not refuted, um, recanted. That they said, because think about it, right? They all were martyred. I mean, all these disciples went to their death. So just imagine if you're pulling off a hoax, right? And you're just faking it. You're making up a story. And you're there about to be burned at the stake. What would you say? Just kidding, right? You're not dying for that lie. If you made it up, they all, not a one. There's no instance. So 95% and more believe that the disciples rose and, and appeared, that the disciples believed he rose and appeared to them. Here's another one. Paul, you know, his name was Saul. He was fighting against the church, jailing, searching to execute and imprison Christians, followers of Christ. He converts completely, and you and I are actually sitting in this room today, most of us, because of St. Paul. He was the apostle to the non-Jewish world. And so Peter was the apostle to the Jewish world, Paul, the apostle of the Gentile world. And so it's interesting. Paul made an absolute 180-degree turn and became the greatest champion for Christianity. It's a huge deal. Here's another one. That's 90%. And here's another 90%. Jesus had a half-brother. His name was James. People often don't know this. Peter was not the head of the Christian church. James was. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. James, Jesus' half-brother, was the... And he was... 
admired by the Jews in Jerusalem because he was so devout. He observed all of the practices. He simply accepted and professed Jesus Christ as, the, as Messiah. He was the leader, and he converted and became. He was very devout in his practice of Judaism. He became the leader of the Christian church. Those four things are, um, are, are just astonishing in that the, the disciples went to their death. Now, does this prove it to you? I'm, I'm not proving it to you. What Paul said is, but indeed, these deeds happened. Paul converted. James led the church. Um, the, mar- the disciples went to their deaths. They declared it. They bore witness to it. And they were faithful unto death in doing so. Okay? So that's the first thing. Sometimes we simply say, I don't know, someone told me that. And indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead. Secondly, he acknowledges this. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So as I've shared with you, and thank you for your prayers, it's helped me immensely. We've got a number of folks in the prayers today, people who have passed, people whose funerals we've done. Um, we've traveled to do it. We've, we've been there with people. You know what's interesting is it isn't really so much, because we had a former secretary of our school just pass, Juana, Juana Ryer, uh, just passed this last week too. And I did this one in Reno, and we have one coming up Saturday, and it's just been a lot. It isn't that person that I'm worried about because thankfully in all of these cases, these are people who were people of faith, who had their trust in Jesus Christ. And I praise God for that. And they're now celebrating. But those of us left behind are kind of hurting. You know? Those of us that are left behind, it kind of leaves a hole. And so what I think Paul is doing, because that's what I think is driving this controversy in Corinth, My wife died, and she didn't rise in three days. And I'm mad, and I'm hurting, and I've experienced a loss. Paul acknowledges that. In Adam, all die. We're all broken. It's all on our calendar, unless Christ chooses to return first. It's all on our calendar. But in Christ, all are made alive. And forgive me for my horrible grammar. There's a real death, is what he's saying. Death, really, end of the world. But there's realer life. And that realer life is eternal and without tears. And it is in the presence of God, which was God's intention in the garden, to be one with Adam and Eve, with his children, to be one with them throughout all eternity in perfect union, just as he describes marriage. And so when I talk to these people, what I want to say is in the third person, that's what he did. He filled that hole that you're now experiencing. He wants to fill that hole. He wants to be with you. He wants to, to remind you. Because we can fill that hole with all kinds of stupid stuff, can't we? We get that hole, that loss, we can fill it with dumb stuff. Anger, resentment. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What are you doing? You know, we can get anger. We can be bitter. We can fill it with all kinds of stuff. And Jesus says, let me fill the hole. Let me step into that hole so that I can embrace you. Um, on this That's the good shepherd that we have. And then the last thing is this. Our God reigns. How am I doing? Okay, we're okay. Our God reigns. Now, I don't know about you. You know, I was was encouraged to see some hostages released in Israel. Boy, it's hard. You You can't imagine the relief of those families, can you? You just can't imagine it. 
And I'm just, I am just appalled at the complete brokenness of our world um, that somehow tries to find a moral equivalence for torture and horror, just horror. And how the human race seems to continue to perpetuate itself on one another in that way. I just, I'm just at a loss to see how that persists. So this, this point can be weird, can't it? And if you're experiencing loss, maybe you've lost a loved one, or maybe you got a diagnosis from the doctor or a friend of yours did, to be able to say this with conviction, our God reigns. So let me give you my illustration for this, because it's been hard for me every once in a while. Just... Uh, I want God to be really fully in charge. And I'm reminded by this. This encouraged me this week. So in the pandemic, we did Easter in here. There's nobody here. 2020. As many of you watched online. Me and Jim and Teresa and Ben and five of our closest friends. That was all we had in here. And, uh, and you know what the assigned reading was for that year? And it's the same as this year. It's Mark, the resurrection account in Mark. And you know how Mark ends... The resurrection account, the women left the tomb trembling and afraid and said nothing to anyone because they were terrified. That's how, it, that's how the Easter story in Mark ends. And I loved it for the pandemic because it was a weird time, right? We were just a couple months into it, a month, in, really into it at, around Easter. It was weird, scary time. We were shooting bullets in the dark. Didn't know. What did we know? We saw people dying. We saw hospitals overrun. I mean, it was... And so it's hard to say that thing when horrible stuff happens. Our God reigns. And I was so grateful for that passage because, again, hear it, right? Trembling and bewildered, the women left the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were terrified. It didn't matter if they were terrified. It didn't matter if they said, praise the Lord. The tomb is still empty. It does not matter what our circumstances are. It does not matter what the news says. It does not matter what you read or what somebody may say to you or what harm or whatever. The tomb is still empty and our God still reigns. And for that we give thanks. The first person and the third person Point to the second. In Christ, to God be the glory. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.